The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. My name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, um, I'm actually the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row. I'd love to meet you at some point, maybe after the service or at another time. And uh, part of even registering on that thing is send me an email. Uh, I'd love to get coffee or lunch and get to know your story and um, help you plug further in the life of our church. One of the things about me, if, if some of you know this, is um, I did sports in college and uh, really enjoyed that. It was, a, it was a part of my life I really enjoy look back with a lot of fondness. Some of you in this room, I've talked to about your uh, athletic uh, um, uh, prowess back in the day in college. Uh, Megan, my wife, always says to me that uh, if she did not marry me, I'd end up like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, There's a lot of truth to that. Um, But, uh, you know, one of the things I learned from moving from high school to college athletics was a lot about the inside uh, work of technique, and I really enjoyed that. Like, I don't know if you ever watched Peyton and Eli do the Monday Night Football cast. It's like one of my very favorite things to do. I record it. And they, do, they also bring people on. But if you listen to them talk about the game, you hear things that many of you, if you watch football, and you're like, oh, football's fine. It just seems like a bunch of guys running around hitting each other. They really unpack it in a way you go, man, I never thought about this angle, this throw, this mindset. Well, that, that's kind of what, what I learned a lot about and uh, of doing sports. It wasn't just so much, you know, more athleticism. It was more mentality of sports. And I ran track, and so a couple of things that I did were uh, throwing discus and shot put and those kind of things. And uh, if you look at me, I'm not, I don't look <laughs> like throwing shot put. No, but that would, those were part of the events that I did as a whole. And one of the ways that I had to learn how to do that was the technique was so important to, in order to push this ball or this disc out to wrap yourself in and then out to move that, that centrifugal force outward. I don't know if you ever watch sports, uh, think certain things like ice skating. There's a difference between centripetal force and centrifugal. Centripetal force is what you see typically with um, an ice skater who, when their arms are out and they're spinning and they pull their arms in and they go faster, that's centripetal force. That's the force moving inward to bring the speed so that you can hit top speed and you can almost see just a blur of a person spinning. Centrifugal force is what I often had to learn and to the maximum of hitting that centrifugal force. So moving all that tightness in with a shot put or a discus and then releasing that, moving and then outward and then getting it just right to get the maximum amount of distance on something. You're like, why are you telling me this? G.K. Chesterton said this about Christianity and I thought this was genius. He said, Christianity is very different than other religions. Christianity is centrifugal, not centripetal. 
It is centrifugal, not centripetal. In other words, most every religion is centripetal. The force moves inward to focus on what you can do to be a better person or change or, or get right. Centrifugal force of Christianity is God has done a work He has enacted in us, and it has to do, it has to work its way outward. If you're in relationship with the Lord, if you're in relationship with anybody, if even if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I'm I'm kind of looking at it, I'm I'm trying to make sense of it. Centrifugal force of, of what the gospel means is that the relationship that you have, it emanates in every part of your life. It's not just about a bettering of your insides internally. And yes, there is a work being done, but it is a relationship that moves its force inside out so that it impacts not only your relationships in here inside of church, but outside. I don't know if you noticed this. When Paul speaks in here, he talks about that relationship right out of the gate. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. And what he means by that is not a derogatory term of, oh, there are people inside and outside. He's just stating the fact that there are people looking in on this gathering, these people that call the church, and they're going, what is this thing? Why are they different? And he's saying we should, what we know as true and how we live it should move inside out so that those who are outside or even those who may come inside the walls of the church and who may say, I don't know if I'm considered a Christian or not, can look and say, this is what Christianity is. That the force moves outward. There, there are all sorts of like, you know, research and statistics and things. There's a group called Barna who does a lot of uh, research that gives statistics on what is, what is the church, how is the church viewed? That's, that's what Paul is getting at. How do people see the church? And Barna does this in research, and one of the many staggering things is that only 21% of those who would say they are not Christians today have a positive view of the church. Only 21% of those outside of the church would say they're not, they would not identify as a follower of Jesus, say they have a positive view of the church. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. We're getting close to finishing this letter. It's a letter of Colossians. Paul often wrote letters to churches to encourage them, to equip them, to talk to them about what does it mean to be a Christian and also live it out. And as we've said, we're closing to the end of this. And at the beginning of the letter, it really, first half of it, and most of his letters to churches say, this is the, this is the uh, indicative, the fact of who you are in Jesus. But it always moves to the imperative. That means that the command, the, the way you're supposed to live. That it never starts right out here inward. It starts with who are you in him outward to the imperative. The fact of who you are as a Christian should change the way you live. And he's moving close to the end of this letter. And he's finishing by saying in the imperative, How do people outside the church view you in the city of Colossae? How would people in Nashville, where there are churches almost on every single corner, view those inside the church? A lot of people moving here every day. We know all those stats. A lot of people moving here or moving back here. A lot of people say one of the great questions, one of the three questions, I've talked to many of you who have moved here. First three questions people ask you when you move to Nashville, Tennessee. What do you do for a living? Where do you live? Where do you go to church? 
Interesting that that's one of the three questions. But here's the, the odd thing about it. That third question doesn't always precipitate the fact that you may be a Christian or identify. I don't, I don't suggest that everybody in this room, even if church has been a part of your life and all of your life, would say, I identify as a Christian, a follower of Christ. What does it mean for the church to encourage us, encourage the church to show who we are to those who may be looking in or, or here this morning, asking that question? He does it in three ways. He says we need to be in prayer, we need to buy time, and we also need to season our speech. You know, we need to pray, think about the time, and think about the way we speak. We're going to look at those three things in this, these six verses, or these five verses. <clears throat> the first thing he really unpacks here is, and he says it in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray for all of us that God may open to us a door to the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Many times when we talk about what does it mean for us to share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus, share Christianity, it can make us clammy. I think a lot of us have, maybe over the, over the years, have felt like, well, I don't know how to do that. What, what does that look like? And I think if that's a struggle for you, if that's a question, this is the perfect passage for us to unpack that. Because that's exactly where he goes. What do I say? Paul even asks that. Paul begins by saying this that it's not up to you. There is a freedom by him saying first and foremost that it is not all about you. We don't have to make it all about us. I remember being in Houston, Texas. I was working in a church and there happened to be this incredible theologian, a guy named Ed Clowney. He's actually passed away now. If you know that name, Ed Clowney has served as uh, the president of a number of actually seminaries in the United States. He was, he's written a number of books, major theological treatises, as well as short, really, I mean, in fact, Tim Keller, if you know that name, considers Ed Clowney one of the fathers of uh, our, not only denomination, but of just thought and life into, uh, you know, how to engage both relationship with the Lord and into the culture. But I remember he, we, we had this beautiful opportunity. He was on our staff, and we had a staff meeting, and um, I was this new, young uh, uh, youth minister, youth director in this church, and we were sitting around talking about, okay, how do we reach out? How do we reach to everybody? And we turned to, to Ed in this, in this meeting after we've had all this strategic discussion, and Ed, in his quiet voice, says, well, these are all great, but you know what we need to do? We, we need to first pray. And we all kind of sat like, oh, wise. But you know what he was saying? He said, no, no, no. And then he began to teach us why prayer is important, drawing from passages like this one, because listen to what Paul says. <clears throat> he says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That God may open a door. This is actually very common rabbinical uh, language to talk about open door. It's used often in the New Testament and by Paul to say the door has to be open and that we are not the ones who do it. That we pray to God and reach to him to say, God, would you make this effective? Would you do this work? 
And I know that that's a very difficult thing. Sometimes we talk about God's sovereignty and those kind of things when we talk about people and, and salvation. But there's, a, there's a great thinker named J.I. Packer who says, no matter where we are in the spectrum of that, that discussion, struggling with that, one thing is true regardless, that when we pray for someone to come to know Jesus and be in relationship with him, we are never praying to that person, we are always praying to God. Prayer is not directed to the person, it's always directed upward to him to do that work. In fact, the gospel gives us these pictures of how God works in people's hearts and acts the narrative accounts of the church's work in and back throughout these cities. In fact, Colossae is one of these cities. If you read the book of Acts, you can actually see people moving into these cities and how, who are the people that are a part of this church. It's really cool. One section in Acts chapter 16 talks about Paul going to a place called Philippi in Macedonia, and there's actually three different accounts of people coming to faith in Jesus in three completely different ways. One of those, though, that I love is the very first one. It's a businesswoman named Lydia, where Paul speaks, and you actually get to see the Lord in this phrase say how, how God brings her to faith. It says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive Paul's message. That's actually how the, the Greek translate. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive Paul's message. In other words, that he opens the door to make it effective in there, to work in there. And imagine this. Notice, I don't know if you saw this in here. Paul is writing from where he says in verse 3, which I am in prison. So if you're doing the math right in your head, you're going, he wants to speak to all these people and yet he's chained in a prison? <laughs> it's kind of ironic. It's actually a perfect passage for us who feel often like, how do I do this? I'm in an office with a group of people who I know or don't know at all where they are spiritually. I'm in a class where I hear certain things up front, I may interact with other people. I have family members that we are together all the time and yet I have no idea where they are. We begin by praying. We begin by saying, Lord, help me see and listen and learn. Like verse four says, that I may Make it clear which is how I ought to speak. It should comfort us that the Apostle Paul, who has more training than any of us in this room for the, everything in the Old Testament, and then has met Christ face to face, says, I need to pray because I'm not sure how to speak. That should be encouraging that we go to the Lord to say, Lord, help me. Make sense of this for me. I have people in my own life that, and even in my family that I think of when I think of this, and I think, Lord, I think I think I know how to speak all the time or act or not, or maybe I avoid or shut down or think, uh, I can't work this, or maybe it's awkward. But instead, how am I actually asking God to equip me to do it? Because it's important. And what, do we what are we supposed to declare? It even gives us that. In verse three, that God may open to us the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. The mystery of Christ. 
And you know what this means? Is this not, it, it sounds funny. Why would he say the mystery of Christ? He could have said to declare the gospel. <clears throat> but he, instead he uses this language, the mystery of Christ, to say that it's not. It's actually a twist of words. Because what a mystery of Christ means in that verse is that it once was a mystery that people in the Old Testament were longing to see and yet now it's been made new. He can only declare, how do you declare a mystery unless it's been opened? It makes me think, sorry, it makes me think of that episode in The Office when Michael Scott hits bankruptcy and he walks outside and they're like, I'm sorry, Michael, you, you have bankruptcy. And he walks outside and screams, I declare bankruptcy! And they go, that, no, no, that's not how it works. Like, that's not bankruptcy. How do you declare something? Unless you know it. Unless it's been unpacked and opened to you. See what Paul is saying, and he twists the word, and he uses the word mystery to get into the Colossians in their face because they think it is such a mystery. They need to really understand and unpack. What he's saying is the mystery has been unfolded. You know why? You declare what you know, and how does he know? It's because Jesus has made himself known. In fact, here's what's incredible. If you read in the New Testament, often Paul, Peter, and others in the New Testament will say that you and I and those post the Old Testament that have more, we actually have more revealed to us than they did, than even the Old Testament prophets, than even all of that Old Testament, that they long to see what we get to now see. And even declare, it begins by prayer. It begins by praying. The next thing, though, that is interesting that's embedded in this that may not be easily seen is first that we need to be in prayer. And I want to say, are you praying? Are you taking your, your heart before the Lord and those that come to mind? But also, the second thing is buying time. And this is a really strange thing because it's, it's, it's there a little bit in verses two and five, but we really need to look at, at why. I read an article some time ago in The Atlantic and it was regarding what's called apatheism. How have you ever heard of this before? Not, it, it's kind of a, a, the combination of what you would think, apathy and theism or atheism, apatheism. That one of the things that's governing our, our culture today when it comes to discussion about any sort of religion is not what the tendency is or disinclination to care about one's own religion or others. That it is more centripetal. It's more for you. It's, yay, if it works for you, it's yours. But what's interesting about here is it says at the very beginning, verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then in verse five, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. What he's saying here when he talks about time, he's talking about not just, hey, seize every moment, but he's saying, it's actually the language that means buying up time. In fact, when he says in verse five, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time, the language best use of is, is the Greek word for redeem. It means you buy it up. It means you see it almost like stocks. You just see time and you're just buying it up. You take every, every moment in your grasp. But he actually is hearkening in verse two back to something that happened in the Gospels. 
When he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. There's a moment in the end of the Gospels when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's actually one of his most crucial moments of ministry. In the narrative accounts, it shows Jesus in a garden. It's a, it's a, and we'll talk about it as we get closer to Easter, this olive orchard that had a press in it. And he takes them there to pray. And all the disciples are just seem to be sleepy. They just seem to be kind of out of it. He's, he's saying, this is the crucial hour. It was right before they were gonna come arrest him to take him to trial. And he says to them, watch and pray. And he doesn't just do it once, but he has to come to them three different times and say, are you still so sleepy? You need to watch and pray. The hour is still near. And what he's talking about isn't just that one moment of you need to be awake and fight. or you need. He's talking about what theologians call an eschatological view of time. Eschatology is a view of having one foot in the moment now and another foot in the moment of the eternal. It means that buying up time means as Christians that we're not just looking at the here and now and we're not just looking at what's ahead in heaven. We actually have a foot in both places. That those, as C.S. Lewis said beautifully, he said those who really make the biggest impact here and now are those who have an eye for the future. Those who have their eye ahead because they know what's coming. They know the hope of what's ahead. That in other words, to buy up the time to keep watch and pray means we need to think, are we sitting back in apathy of who we are in relationship to the Lord? Or is the relationship that we have with Jesus so profound that the force of it cannot help but move its way out in our jobs, in our families, in our friendships, in every way possible? And it doesn't just mean speaking. Notice, he says, walk in wisdom. It doesn't just mean you're saying things. It means, what does it look like? Are we being mindful of how every part of our relationship with the Lord Jesus is emanating out? The people looking in, not just inside the walls of a church, but inside the walls of our own heart, see that, not that we're perfect, but that there's some other relationship going on. There's a, a, a project called the um, Gotham Project. There's a, it's a, a ministry that we have called the National Institute of Faith and Work. Where at the end of this nine-month program called the Gotham Program, you, you're supposed to do a light, gospel light pro, a project um, where you think of ways in your actual job to bring light into darkness, to actually do this kind of thing. It's It's incredible. And the stories that I hear over and over are, um, and I've heard multiple ones, of people just thinking, okay, how do people, and, and this is how they think of it, how do people who may work in uh, a certain factory or a certain company who on the, they cannot have, uh, they lose pay or they're docked if they don't get to a certain place? How do we create shuttles for them? Or how do we care for them and their family? Like thinking about how to bring the gospel in that way. And over and over the story I hear is when they bring this project or this idea to whoever their superior is. That their superior is like, that's a great idea. I'm glad you said, hey, why are you doing this? <laughs> is usually the question. 
Where is this coming from? Think about the Lord's open door. Think about those kind of, the natural work of living out the gospel, thinking beyond. How does the good news of Christ transform not just me and my little sphere, but what it means to actually have a company work beautifully and reflect flourishing for those who are within it? I don't know if you ever heard of the name Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn and Teller are mus- uh, not musicians, magicians, uh, who have been, uh, they're pretty famous. I mean, they've been around for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they still do their thing in Vegas or wherever they are. Um, but uh, Penn, one of the two magicians, is a very outspoken atheist, assuming he still may be. And... Um, over the time, he's done blogs before, video blogs. And I remember seeing one in particular that was really interesting to me. Because a lot of times, to be honest, I like interacting and listening to people and saying, okay, what, what, what are people who are not like me and not thinking like me um, thinking about these things? And I remember seeing one of his, his blogs, and it was, it was him receiving a Bible from a guy. And he talks about it. Very interesting. He says, at the end of one of his shows, a man approached him afterwards and said, thank you so much. I really, really loved the show. It was fantastic. And Penn talked about how this guy was just such a good guy and he, that he handed him uh, a Gideon New Testament. It's a certain kind of uh, 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 New Testament that's put together. You may have seen him in hotel rooms and those kind of things. Hands him that. Now, many of us may go, gosh, that sounds just aggressive and weird, but Penn, the way that Penn received it, he said, this man was not giving, I recognized as even, and he says, as somebody who could care less about Christianity or or this, that this man handing me a Bible wasn't him trying to just do something to me, but that he actually cared about me. And he continues on in this, and I think the thing that struck me the most was when Penn looks in the camera and he says, if you have something, and this is an, an atheist telling everyone on his blog this, if you have something that you care about most and you think other people are going to miss it or not make it if you don't give it to them, how much do you have to not care about that person to not provide them this news that you have? That is pretty stark in your face of how does the gospel actually land in us? It doesn't mean we stand on street corners. It means does the relationship that you have cause beauty in your life? You know how it is if you have a relationship that you're just, it gives you flourishing. It gives you some sort of encouragement and you interact with other things in your life. Colors look differently. Food tastes differently. Life looks different. Not because all those things have changed, but because you are so met and known by someone. That is the good news of the gospel. It gets in the places that we may not recognize but the force should drive outward. Not just to better our day, but to transform our world so that people look in and see that. And he finishes with verse six by saying, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to ought to answer each person. 
gracious speech. I don't think this could ever be more timed beautifully than this next week coming up. I've seen more campaign ads, more voting things from everybody on TV and everyone around, every sign lining a street. How does someone look at us who may identify us as a Christian actually hear what we would call, we use that word grace. What does it mean to be gracious speech? Gracious speech is not divisive. It's not inflammatory. It doesn't mean it doesn't take a stand. But I'll tell you, when I've, I've, it's been the most painful to me is when I remember in years past, someone saying to me, hey, I thought you were a Christian from someone who wasn't because of the words that came out of my mouth. Because what this tongue does is it draws out only what is in the well of our heart. And is that tongue drawing out of a well of grace of what God has done within us? It doesn't mean we don't mess up. It doesn't mean we're not gonna say things. But is our stance and the things that we say consistently something that, that's seasoned with salt. You know, we talk about guys like Tim Keller or other men and women who speak these things beautifully. You know what? I was just talking to somebody this week about Tim Keller, who's a, who's a great theologian and thinker, pastor in New York City. You may have heard his name. We were talking about how he's been on, in, like, spoken to Google and Parliament in London. Like places where we're going, whoa, this is amazing. I mean, to be able to speak about Christianity in places we wouldn't think at all. But you know what is so incredible? If you watch any, and you can, you can watch all the YouTube videos you want. Isn't so much his answers, it's how he delivers them. I am constantly amazed and encouraged that when I see people like him speak that it's not just he gives us an answer that just, wow, that's it. <laughs> but that he does so with such kindness. A stance, hey, this is the gospel, but it's good news. It's not just news. It's not doom scrolling that we all do on our iPhones with any other news. It's good news. And shouldn't it be good as it's delivered because it's hit us that way. There's a, a book I'd encourage everybody to read here. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. It's a book on how to share. It's by a woman named Rebecca Pippert. This is what she says. Our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information. It's that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget we are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and know, <clears throat> not to what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. We haven't grasped that it is really okay for us to be who we are when we are with others or seekers, even if we don't have all the answers to their questions or if our knowledge of Scripture is limited. That we are ourselves, saved by grace, and our voices and our speech is seasoned with salt that gives taste to the world. It gives, what does it do? Seasoned with salt. You give too much salt. <laughs> Notice it's seasoned with salt. Too much salt. 
just ugh. Not enough, doesn't bring out the flavor. But seasoned with salt means that it, it is in this world, that we're speaking actively into this world. And I think none better than this illustration of this table in front of us, of taste, right? This table gives us an incredible picture of that. You know, many outsiders in this time, and when we were reading from this passage, looked in on them taking from a table like this that called it body and blood and said, those insiders are weird because they said they're cannibals. What are they eating body and blood for? That's so strange. And even those who were inside sometimes took the meal. If Paul had to write in another letter to them saying, hey, this isn't like every other meal. They start just eating and drinking from the table all the time, just like whatever. But you know what Paul says? He says, we need to examine ourselves before we come to this table. And examine doesn't mean you have to have like an examination, that you have to pass the test. Examine ourselves means are you, what you, it means to be an insider at this table doesn't mean you did something right in religion. And it also isn't like any other meal. It means you're in right relationship with the person who set the table. See, this is why I say this. This is not my table. I know that's funny sounding. It's actually not my table. It's not even Christ Presbyterian Music Rose table. It's Jesus's table. This is his body and blood that he gives. And what makes you inside is your relationship to Jesus. In fact, think about it this way. Every single one of us in this room and everyone he's writing to in this, in this letter were outsiders made insiders. So we can all relax. You don't have to try and be somebody else. You don't have to work it up or live perfect just to show some picture. Who are we to show our relationship to a God who's brought us in, who are all outside and said, I want you with me. That's what makes it attractive. That's how you season it with salt. That's how we speak with grace. And then, you know, when we don't, we can say, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I know I didn't do that. Because we have a God who's the only one that has done it and spoken perfectly is the one who set this table, it's Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.